Well, again, good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Let me start by asking a question. Um, can any of you speak a second language or a foreign language? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but uh, I would imagine, given the context that we're in, that there's probably some of you that know a second language. My wife and I spent about seven or eight years living in South Africa. There, uh, we started learning Zulu. If by the off chance you speak Zulu this morning, don't try to talk to me in it afterwards. We will not get very far. Um, we were over there working with university students. We had some friends uh, that were working at a different campus. The dominant language on that campus was Afrikaans, which is a simplified Dutch. Uh, and so we're learning basic things, right? Like how to say, what is your name? So in Zulu, if you're going to say, what is your name? You're going to say, Ungubani Gamalako. All right, everybody, I'm just kidding, we're not going to do that. Um, so we're talking with our friends, they come back from their Afrikaans class, and we're like, hey, how do you say what is your name in Afrikaans? And they're like, what is your nom? And we're like, are you kidding me? Like, can we trade campuses here? Um, if you've traveled overseas, if you lived overseas, you know that it's important to learn the language. Like, if you want to build relationships, it helps to know the language. If you want to really kind of get anywhere, uh, it helps to know the language, especially um, when there's an emergency. Knowing the language helps uh, if you want to get some help, or if you want to be of any assistance when there's an emergency, knowing the language helps. Why, why this discussion of language? Well, it's because we're really going to drill down on the meaning of one word. We want to understand this word because it has massive implications. If we don't understand this word, it's going to have impact on uh, our, our relationships and where we go in times of need. So the word we're going to look at this morning is grace. Paul uses it 12 times in the six chapters of Ephesians. Uh, by the time we come to the end of our passage this morning, he's used it six times already. So he's He's obviously wanting those in Ephesus to understand what he means by grace. Grace is important to him, and it's important to us here. Um, there's a, a latent danger, like a potential pitfall that I'm worried about for us this morning, and it's this. Um, familiarity. All right, like we hear the word grace. We hear for by grace uh, you are saved through faith, and we think, oh, I got that. I'm good, you know, like this is basic stuff. Um, friends, when it comes to how radical grace is, um, when it comes to all that it means for me and how I relate to others, when it comes to extending grace, I would venture to guess for many of us, we don't got this. All right, like I, I know I certainly can't say I'm good when it comes to you know, completely understanding grace and all that it means for my life. When it comes to the world we live in, uh, there's arguably nothing more that the world needs than this grace. And it is notably absent from many places that we operate. Right? Um, some of our most significant relationships suffer because of the absence of grace. And, and no man or woman in this room can hope to have peace with God unless we understand and experience grace. So let me pray that God would help us to see and know and understand his grace this morning. Pray with me. Mighty and merciful Father, um, by your Spirit, would you help each one of us to know the grace that's found in Christ and that you speak of here in your word. Amen. 
should make sure and wish uh, all of our mothers here this morning a happy Mother's Day. Um, and, and even as we begin here, right, we can see um, the role that grace needs to play in our lives. God, in, in his grace and his power, creates humans and designs family. And many of us know, I really love Tom's prayer, right? Many of us know the love of a, a mother pointing us to the love of God. And we can be thankful for that. And we can connect the dots between a loving mother and a gracious God and see that that's God's good gift for us. God's grace is at work there. And then as Tom prayed, for some Mother's Day is a difficult day. Maybe it's because of the separation and, and dysfunction in the relationship uh, between you and your mother. Maybe it's because of struggles with infertility. And Mother's Day just brings up memories of miscarriages. Um, maybe it's because of discontentment with singleness and a longing to be married and, and be a mother. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, where you're at. You're not the mother you thought or hoped you'd be. You, you've messed up yourself, friends. God's grace understanding it and experiencing it. That's what we need to navigate every day, including Mother's Day, connecting the dots between God and great mothers and connecting the dots between God and His grace and our sufferings and challenges with motherhood. So we're going to look at the nature of, the, of grace. If you want an outline this morning, we're going to look at four things, all right? Four things about grace. Grace is offensive, grace is effective, grace is productive, and grace is costly. All right, offensive, effective, productive, and costly. Let's start with the first one. Grace is offensive. If I were to do a survey here this morning at Capitol Press Fairfax, I went around the room and said, give me one word when you think of grace, what, this is the word. I sincerely doubt that many of you would say offensive. But we need to know. Um, grace is offensive. It, it, it offended the sensibilities and understanding of the first century, uh, you know, people that Paul was writing to, and it offends our sensibilities, right? What's offensive about it? A couple things. Um, the first thing that's offensive about it, and what Paul says here, is what he says about uh, where we are apart from God, where we were apart from God, and maybe where we still are apart from God. That's the first thing that's offensive. The second thing that's offensive is what he tells us we can do about it. All right, let's start with the first thing. Those first uh, few verses, one through three there in the passage, think about some of those phrases that Paul uses. He says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. All right, he says, um, you were numbered among the sons of disobedience. He says, by your very nature, like your nature, you were children of wrath. Happy Mother's Day, right? Like, um, uh, this is, uh, it, it's not happy to hear, uh, you know, and when we think about this, I, I was reminded that one of the facts about humankind is that we have this incredible capacity to minimize in certain situations, right? Um, I'm, I'm reaching back here a little bit, all right? But there was a movie called Monty Python and the Holy Grail, all right? In that movie, King Arthur meets with the Black Knight, and there's this epic battle where King Arthur starts lopping off actual limbs of the Black Knight, if you remember, all right? So this guy's losing limbs, but every limb he loses, he's like, oh, it's just a scratch, right? He loses another limb. Oh, it's just a flesh wound, right? Um, and in some ways, 
we can see that same kind of minimization, ridiculous minimization in us when it comes to our spiritual condition apart from God. Because here's what our minimization looks like. Um, We say, oh, well, really, I'm just having a bad day or really, I'm just going through a rough patch. I'm really not that bad. Or we say, well, yeah, I mean, I've just got a bit of a temper, but I'm really not. It's just a little temper. Or we say, yeah, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I've looked at those around me and I've done the calculus and I'm pretty sure I still come out, you know, close to the top. Um, In these three verses, Paul throws cold water on all of that nonsense. He says, no, actually, apart from God, uh, it's not that you're just going through a rough patch. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. No, it's not like you just have a temper issue. You're a son of disobedience. No, it's um, the reality about you and me is apart from God, we are children of wrath. And it's offensive to hear that. It's It's offensive to realize that we are traitors and rebels, that we've run from our creator and we've given our allegiance to the power of the prince of the air. But that's what the gospel teaches us, is that our spiritual DNA, that we are born with an inclination towards this rebellion and we need to be rescued from it. But it's offensive to have to place yourself among the rebels and traitors but that's where we find ourselves. Now, I realize some here this morning, maybe you're visiting, maybe you're investigating Christianity, maybe you're here because you were drug here. Maybe you have friends that are investigating Christianity and you hear them say things like this. Um, what's offensive to them is just the notion of God and the fact that he would impose this morality on us to begin with. Like the idea of a God and the idea of this morality or, or the, this talk of sins and trespasses um, from God is just offensive. Uh, I was reading a story once, um, it was earlier this week, and it's about a guy named A.N. Wilson. He graduated from Harvard in, not Harvard, sorry, close, Oxford, just across the pond. Um, He graduated from Oxford in the 70s. And in the 80s, he thought about going into the Anglican ministry. Uh, But shortly thereafter, uh, he disavowed his faith. Um, in fact, he, he wrote a book, uh, let me find the title of it here, uh, Against Religion, Why We Should Try to Live Without It. And he writes this book, he connects with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, well-known guys in the New Atheist Movement. They're happy to hear about his abandoning of the faith, joining their side, if you will. And so he walks that life for a season, but then um, later on he makes this startling announcement that he's returning to faith. And he says what was especially difficult for him when it comes to his secular viewpoint, when it comes to his uh, worldview without God, what was especially troubling was uh, morality and this problem of morality and and how do we find it or understand it apart from God. He he writes this, he wrote a couple articles in, in British magazines and newspapers. He says this, that he was writing a book about the Wagner family in Nazi Germany and he was realizing how utterly incoherent were Hitler's neo Darwinian ravings. And how potent was the opposition, much of it from Christians, paid for not only with clear intellectual victory, but in blood. He says, read Pastor Bonhoeffer's book, Ethics. David Stevenson last week quoted from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor that lost his life, um, was put to death by the Nazis. Um, 
Wilson says, read Bonhoeffer's book, Ethics, and ask yourself what sort of mad world is created by those who think that ethics are a purely human construct. All right, so, so Wilson ends up not being offended by a God who would uh, talk to his creation about how they should live. He's offended by the idea that somehow morals could be a, a merely human construct. So grace is offensive, one, because it tells us where we are apart from God. Grace is offensive, two, because it Paul talks about, well, what can we do about that? Or rather, what can we not do about that? If you look at verses um, 8 and 9, he's saying, yes, salvation comes to the rebels. But how does it come? Look at the words he used. He says, this is not of your own doing. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not of your own doing, not a result of works. Paul's writing to Gentile Christians. We know that because we see it in verse 11. So it would have offended the sensibilities of these Gentiles because up until then, they would have thought that salvation was a works. Going to the temple, making sacrifices, planting certain trees in your backyard or having shrines. That's how you curry favor with God. What do you mean it's not by works? Um, And even early Jewish Christians would have struggled with this, right? You achieve merit, you achieve salvation through following God's law. And and Paul writes about that in Galatians and Romans. And it's not just a first century problem, it's a 21st century problem too, right? Um, You are what you do. Um, Your identity is wrapped up in your achievement. You get what you earn, friends. That's everywhere. That's the air that we breathe here. Whether you're walking down the hallways of Mantua Elementary School or Capital One or Caboose, wherever you find yourself, it's like that's our first language. That's the native tongue around here is this achievement and earning. And what Paul says here flies in the face of that. Salvation cannot be earned. Favor from God cannot be earned. And we need to know um, uber-competent, type A, valedictorian, DC people, all right, you need to know you cannot earn salvation. There's maybe nothing more offensive you could say in this context. It's a gift. It comes by God and it comes by His grace. So um, grace is offensive. Grace is effective. In verse 4, Paul shifts from uh, the bad news to the good news. I told you about those phrases in the first three verses, dead and trespasses, children of wrath. Well, the, the phrases get better, thankfully, right? God being rich in mercy, not just kind of merciful, reluctantly merciful, begrudgingly merciful, rich in mercy because of the great love, all right? Not the on-again, off-again love. Um, and then look where it says, like, like when we get this love. The great love that he's given us, he's bestowed upon us in Christ when we finally got our act together and cleaned up our mess and got our marriage right. When we got good grades and finally got good grades. Or or it's not when he says God loved us. When does it say God loved us? God loved us when we were dead in our trespasses. All right, you hadn't done anything to earn it. You hadn't done anything to achieve it. His great love, his rich mercy comes to you when you were dead and effectively brings you to life. That's God's MO. That's how he works. And this entire book shows that over and over again, right? Story after story. You know what? The, the story of David and Goliath, the ultimate point of David and Goliath isn't dare to be a David. All right, the ultimate point of David and Goliath is... 
Um, we serve an awesome and loving and powerful and gracious God that sees his people rebelling and fearful and cowardice, and he can save them through a young, small man and a slingshot. The story of Daniel isn't dare to be a Daniel. It's look how awesome and loving God is to rescue his people and shut the mouth of lions and rescue from the furnace. The story of, of Jonah, it's not ultimately about a big fish, right? It's about... A God who loves his enemies so much that in grace, he's going to do amazing things so that his enemies hear about his love and his salvation. Um, the story of Hosea. You don't know what the story of Hosea is about? Go read the story of Hosea and you'll see God is a God of grace pursuing his people. See, often we treat this book like it's full of moral fables. When more often than not, it speaks of moral failures and a gracious God that lovingly pursues them and wrestles with them, saves them, and uses them to make his grace known. Grace is offensive, grace is effective, and then grace is productive. All right, we get to verse 10, and we start seeing creation language. All right? Um, we start seeing creation language uh, we are created for good works that God prepared beforehand, right? That, that we should walk into them. And, and this walking language is all throughout Ephesians. Paul cares a lot about how we walk. Talks about walking in love, not walking in our former ways, walking wisely because uh, the days are evil. So it's clear that for Paul, Christianity is the furthest thing from just sitting somewhere for a couple hours a week, right? Um, it has everything to do. For Paul, Christianity has everything to do with where you walk and how you walk into those places, right? Whether you're walking into Fairfax High School or whether you're walking into those um, places that, uh, where you work that you can't talk about because you have a mysterious job because this is D.C. and that's a thing, all right? Um, God knows where you work, and when you walk into those places, um, you're called to have good works in your life. When you walk into your home, when you walk on the sidelines of your daughter's soccer game, you're called to walk in those ways, in such ways that there's good works that reflect who your God is and how he's loved you and how he loves his people, right? Good works never merit salvation, but salvation produces good works. That's clear. That's obvious from Paul's teaching. So the father or husband that has zero grace in the way that he talks to his wife or children should ask himself, have I really tasted of the grace of my heavenly father? Grace is offensive, effective, productive. Finally, grace is costly. Grace is costly. You say, hold up, Yancey. What's this talk about grace being costly? All right, like it says it's a gift. Grace is a gift. And in fact, if I remember in Romans, it says grace is the free gift of God, right? What's this talk of costliness? Um, yes, it is free to you and it is free to me, but it costs God a great deal. We see Paul using this language, this phrase, in Christ, a number of times. We have this salvation in Christ. The immeasurable riches we have come in Christ. We are created in Christ for good works. That's not a throwaway phrase. All right, that reveals that all we have, this grace that we have is in Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. We can't think that this grace is cheap. All right, let me go back to Bonhoeffer for one more time. All right, um, he writes against 
this notion of cheap grace. Listen to what he says about costly grace. He says it is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So my hope this morning is that as you hear the language of the Capitol Press family, as you hear us say, grace changes everything, um, that you'll understand the meaning of grace, the meaning of grace, which is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, that grace is offensive, that it forces an honesty about who we are and where we were apart from God, that, that grace is effective, that it rescues us, and that regardless of what the headlines are on cable news or your circumstances this week, um, there is a salvation and a rescue that changes your eternal destiny. That grace is productive, that it empowers us, that it enables us to be the roommates and friends that we want to be, right? To be the husbands and wives that we truly want to be, to be um, the mothers and fathers that we long to be. Grace empowers and enables us because it's productive. It works that in us. Um, and grace is costly. That we see in the cross. Um, the, what sin has cost, and the love that was willing to pay it. And friends, when we see these things, that does change everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to gather week in and week out and be reminded of who you are and what you've done. And I pray for myself and for my friends that you would impress these truths upon our soul that you would help us to know and understand grace, maybe for the first time today, um, maybe in a fresh way today, that changes the way we live this week and the way that we live the rest of our lives. Help us to be a people that extend grace, that our friends in Fairfax or wherever we're from, that they might come to know your grace through us and the good works that you've prepared for us. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.